A man and his wife were having an argument about who should brew the coffee on the morning of Valentine's Day. The wife said, you should do it because you're more of a morning person and you always get up first. If you do it, then we don't have to wait as long to get our coffee and we'll both be happy. The husband said, hey, you're in charge of the cooking around here, so you should do it because it's your job and I can just wait for my coffee. The wife replies, no, you should do it. And besides, it says in the Bible, the man should do the coffee. Husband, strange look on his face. He says, I can't believe that's true. Show me. So she fetched her Bible. She opened to the New Testament and she showed him at the top of several pages that it indeed says Hebrews. (laughs) Acts chapter 7, please. Acts chapter 7 this morning. I'd like to read with you this morning this passage of Scripture as we study. We're working our way slowly through this chapter. I I was tempted initially to just try and do the whole thing in one shot and just, you know, just boil it down to the essence. But I, I, I find, as I go through it, that there's there's more here than I can cover in one le- in one message. So, Acts chapter seven and verse nine, we we see if you remember the setting here that we're in. Stephen, who's one of the deacons of the church in Jerusalem, has been active in preaching the word of God, doing miracles. And God was really working through Stephen, so much so that, that, the, that the Jews that opposed him could not uh, refute his arguments. They couldn't respond to his answers that he gave. This was the man that the Bible here describes as being full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom, full of grace, and full of faith, full of power. They couldn't stand in opposition to him. And of course, they became angry. And they trumped up charges against him and they brought him in front of the Jewish council on charges of blasphemy. We looked at last week, the two charges they brought were that he had blasphemed the temple, that holy place, they said. And that he blasphemed the law of Moses. And that he was, he said that he was going to change all of the traditions that they had been taught. So we looked last week, Stephen began his defense as he stands there And he stands in front of the council. And if you can imagine the situation, Stephen is standing there and the council is arrayed in a semicircle in front of him. And he's had the charges read to him. A charge of blasphemy which carries with it a death sentence if he's convicted. And rather than say, hey, I didn't do this. Hey, I'm innocent. He instead goes on a history lesson. We looked last week that he looked at the person of Abraham finding common ground with his opponents. But also, subtly, in the person of Abraham, pointing out that it wasn't he who had blasphemed the temple. It wasn't he who had tried to change the law of Moses. It was they. It was the Jews and the religious leaders who had blasphemed the temple because rather than worshiping there, they used it to gain profit. And it wasn't Stephen who had rejected the law. It was It was the Jews themselves. And so Stephen continues in verse 9. He moves through his history lesson of the nation of Israel. Here's what he says, verse 9, the patriarchs. Let me just stop for a second. Who are the patriarchs? Well, he's referring to the sons of Jacob. He mentioned there in the previous verse, Jacob, who had 12 sons. The patriarchs, he says in verse 9, becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt. 
But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives in him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought, uh, bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. I want to consider this morning this passage of Scripture. You may say, okay, pastor, I'll bite. What's it about? I mean, this seems pretty straightforward. Joseph. We know the story of Joseph. His brothers. Yeah, we got that. This is easy. Why does Stephen go here? What's the point? Well, let me suggest, once again, we really have three examples to consider. And what we're going to do as we look at this passage this morning, I'm going to try and draw out for you these three examples. There's three people in this passage, or in maybe not just three people, because I'm going to use all of Joseph's brothers, I'm going to lump them all into one, the patriarchs. We're going to look at their example. Their example is an example of unbelief, of rebellion against God and His Word and His plan. And then, of course, we have the example of Joseph. A man of faith, of faithfulness, a man who obeyed the word of God. And then the third example is God. And we'll see God and his faithfulness. You see, what this passage reveals to us, and I guess in a way we could, we could sum, summarize it with this one statement, Joseph became the instrument by which God began to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Remember that Abraham died without ever seeing the fulfillment of God's promise, right? God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, all this land, it's all going to be yours. That's what Stephen focused on in the first part of his defense, that it was the land that God promised to Abraham. And yet, he said, when Abraham died, he didn't even own enough to set his foot on that God had given him. The only land that Abraham owned was his burial plot, where he buried Sarah and where he was buried. That's it. None of the rest of the land was in Abraham's possession, and that he bought with his own money. God didn't give that to him as inheritance. So Abraham died, and the promise that God made was still unfulfilled. Did that mean that God was somehow neglecting to keep his word? Well, one might think that. Abraham didn't believe that. Abraham believed God's word. When he had no evidence to support it, he simply believed God's word. And the Bible tells us that it was accounted to him for righteousness. But now Stephen goes on. You notice how he really skips over Isaac completely? He just, he just mentions Isaac in passing in verse 8. And then he goes right into, uh, not even Jacob really, but he goes right past Jacob too into Joseph. What's interesting here about Joseph? I love the story of Joseph. We see Joseph here in verse 9 being sold as a slave. You remember the story from, from the book of Genesis? That Joseph received visions. Two specific occasions received visions from God. 
that were predictive prophecies. They were revealing what would happen in the future. And in the visions that he had, his brothers, who were all older than him, and even his father and mother, in these visions that he had, bowed down to him, were subservient to him. And his brothers, Stephen tells us they were envious. <laughs> the motivation for selling Joseph was envy. They sold him as a slave. And of course, if you go through the whole thing, it says in verse 9 that they sold Joseph in Egypt, but God was with him. And God delivered him. And God gave him favor and wisdom. You see, God superintended Joseph's circumstances. And it was Joseph's influence with Pharaoh that preserved Jacob and his family. You think about that for a minute. If Joseph's brothers hadn't sold him into slavery, what would have happened? In all likelihood, the family would have perished in the famine. So because of the dastardly, wicked deed of his brothers, the family was spared. God's promise was upheld. Hmm. That seems kind of strange. Of course, if you want to go a little bit further down that, yes, God's promise was upheld and, and the family was saved, but what happened when they got to Egypt? Eventually, what happened to the family in Egypt? They were enslaved, weren't they? And they suffered bondage and hardship. So we might look at it and say that that was also a consequence of God's superintending in these circumstances. That part of that was to put them in Egypt so that they would be enslaved. Of course, remember that that's what God told Abraham was going to happen, right? God said, your descendants are going to leave this land that I've promised you. Not, they're not going to inherit it. They're going to leave the land. They're going to go to Egypt where they're going to be enslaved. And then I will deliver them. Okay. Then I will give them the land. And of course, it's on the basis and strength of that promise, as we read in this passage, that Jacob and Joseph and all of the patriarchs sent their bones back to be buried in the land of Canaan. Why? Why did it matter so much to them? <clears throat> the last verse that we read there, verse 16, it says that they were carried back into the land of Canaan. Why did it matter so much to them to be buried in the land of Canaan? Why? Because they believed the promise. Just as Abraham, they believed the promise. That that was to be their land. And so even in death, they claimed the promise of God. They believed the word of God. Now, of course, this, these verses here, in a very short number of verses, Stephen covers a whole lot of ground. Okay. Hundreds of years. Right? And there's a whole process that takes place. Because early on, Joseph's brothers' faith would not be uh, a quality that we would attribute to them. See, they were there when Joseph received those visions, right? So they heard what God was revealing to Joseph. And how did they respond? Did they submit to God's plan? Did they say, well, clearly, 
This is God's choice. And you know what? God chose it. We may not understand it. We may not like it. But God, if this is your will, then okay. We'll accept it. We'll submit to it. We'll be willing to support Joseph. And to, to, to grant Joseph the place of blessing. Freely. Right? That's not what they did. Luke here, uh, penning the words of Stephen, says they were envious. The patriarchs became envious. Rather than submit to God's plan as promised, they were jealous of Joseph's position of blessing. And do you realize that what they did in selling their brother into slavery was an attempt to subvert the plan and purpose of God? They were trying to stop God from coming through on his promise. That was what they were doing. This was an act of rebellion against God's revealed truth. You see, at this point in the story, as Stephen goes back and he starts with Abraham, and now he fast forwards to Joseph, what he does right here is he introduces a theme that he's going to trace the rest of his sermon. And eventually he's going to apply it to these people who he's standing in front of him. That the Jews, time after time after time, when God revealed to them, this is my plan, this is what I'm doing, and this is what you need to do to get along with it, they rebelled. They rejected it. And he's going to get to that point. Stephen's going to get to that point where he says, you people who are accusing me are doing the same thing that your ancestors did all the way back the time of Joseph, when they sold him as a slave, in an attempt to prevent God's word from coming true, that he would be exalted over them. But here's what I think is really cool. You see, in spite of the faithlessness of Joseph's brothers, God continued to be faithful. Not just to Joseph, though. You see, when we look at the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, a lot of times I think we're tempted to see God being faithful to Joseph. Joseph was a slave. He went to Egypt. And God continued to just elevate Joseph everywhere he went, right? Potiphar's house, he's elevated. Then he's thrown into prison. He's elevated. Then he gets elevated as far as he can go. Second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And we see this as, as a wonderful story of God protecting his servant. But do you realize that all through that whole time, God was protecting and preserving all of Joseph's dirty, rotten brothers who hated him so much they wanted to kill him. And only at the last minute were stopped when Reuben got a, you know, just a, a brief moment of conscience, right? God was protecting him. Why? Why would God protect them? Well, because it was God's promise. God promised. God promised Abraham that he would have descendants, not just one, but multitudes of descendants. God promised that he would take them to Egypt, that he would make them into a nation, that they would receive the land of Canaan. And understand, those brothers as wicked as they were, were part of that promise. 
God didn't promise Abraham, if your descendants are good, then I'll do this. God said, I will do this, Abraham. Here's another great theme in Scripture that we see. The grace of God. Did Joseph's brothers deserve to be preserved? Did they deserve for God to provide for them over the many years that Joseph was down in Egypt? No, of course not. They deserve judgment. But that's not what they got. They received grace. God provided. He protected. He prospered them. The thing that's interesting about Joseph's brothers, though, why was it they, they became envious? Well, they were envious because Joseph was their younger brother. And here he had received revelation from God that he would be exalted over them. And that was a problem. In their culture, the younger brother did not get exalted over the older brothers. It always started from the top down. Of course, you can go back a generation. Actually, you can go back two generations in this family. And you can see that God liked to turn things on their head. You see, the reaction of Joseph's brothers is not surprising. When you realize it's the third generation that's reacted the exact same way to God's word in this family. See, what they ignored, and this is one thing that I wanted to, to point out to you. God had promised to Abraham blessing, right? And he had promised to him inheritance and prosperity and blessing. So here's the question. Would these brothers of Joseph receive more blessing by opposing God's plan and trying to go their own way because they wanted to be preeminent, because they wanted first place? Or would they have received more blessing if they had said, Lord, this is obviously your plan. And because we're Joseph's brothers, when you choose him, you know what that means? That means we're right next to the promised one. That means we're the brothers of the one who's promised. And so when he's exalted, guess what happens to us? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're exalted too. When he gets blessing poured out on him, don't you think some of that might spill over onto us? That's not how they looked at it, though. Their mentality was, I want first place, and I won't be satisfied with being in God's place where he wants me. If I don't have first place, I don't want any place. That's the way they approached it. But which way would they really receive the most blessing? Now, I said this was the third generation that had reacted this way. Think back with me. and If you're familiar, we don't have time to go to the scripture and look all this up. It's, it's too lengthy. But think back to when Isaac was born. You remember the story of when Isaac was born? Abraham had another son at that point, Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the chosen, promised son because Ishmael was not the son of Sarah. Right? So Abraham had gone outside of the plan of God. Outside of God's will at that point, and what God had told him he was to do. And he tried to find a solution to this some other way. And Ishmael was born. And Ishmael was not a child. He was a teenager when Isaac was born. And the, the Bible says that when Isaac was weaned, Abraham threw a party for Isaac. And something happened at that party. Ishmael was mocking Isaac. 
And that offended Sarah. Of course, if you're a mother here, that probably wouldn't surprise you. right? Someone's mocking, making fun of your baby. Yeah, you might have a problem with that, right? And Sarah had a little problem with that. And she went to Abraham and said, I want that boy and his mom out of here. And God said, don't worry, Abraham, I'll take care of them. Do it. And he did it for one specific reason. Because Isaac was the chosen one, not Ishmael. And a separation was necessary. But understand, Ishmael, his reaction to Isaac. Listen, Ishmael was on the outside. And he knew it. He knew it. Rather than love and support his brother, knowing that Isaac was the son of promise, knowing that Ishmael, had he chosen to support Isaac, he could have received blessing as well. Didn't do it. Then think to the next generation. Right? Isaac has two sons. Esau, the oldest. Jacob, the younger. And again, God says the younger one is the one of promise, right? How did Esau respond? When Isaac received the blessing of the older son? Now, he did it deceitfully. I'll grant that. That wasn't, that wasn't the right way to handle it. But how did Esau respond? He swore, I'm going to kill my brother. Again, here's an envious rejection of God's plan. Both Ishmael and Esau ought to have walked in submission to the will of God. And had they done that, they would have enjoyed the abundant blessing that was available to them. But since they rejected God's choice, they failed to receive all that could have been theirs. This is an important, an important principle that we see. And see, Joseph's brothers made the same mistake. Had they chosen to submit to God's choice, they would have received the best that God had for them. But by choosing to go their own way, by choosing to rebel and reject what God clearly had said, they suffered. They suffered greatly. And they failed to receive all of the blessing they could have received. You see, when God preserved and blessed Joseph, he was protecting and blessing Joseph's brothers. God's goodness to them didn't, wasn't diminished or wasn't hindered by the fact that they rebelled against him. But think how much more, think how much better it would have been for them had they simply submitted to and, and, and surrendered to the will of God been obedient to it. It's interesting when, when Joseph in Genesis 50 is in Egypt and his father passes away. Do you remember the story? Uh, Joseph and his brothers, they mourn and they take his father's bones and they carry them back to the land of Canaan and they bury him. When they come back and they, and, they, and they finish their mourning process. And at the end of their mourning period, Joseph's brothers devise a scheme to come and lie to him. To protect themselves. And they say, hey, before our father died, he told us to tell you you were supposed to forgive us. And not exact revenge on us. Now that he's gone. And Joseph's response, I think, was interesting. He asked them a rhetorical question. He said, am I in the place of God? Do you realize 
The obvious answer to that question is no. Of course not. Joseph, you're not in the place of God. But think back to his brothers. Certainly they had acted in the place of God when they sold him into slavery, hadn't they? They had determined that rather than what God had revealed was true and right, they knew better. They weren't going to let this upstart teenage brother of theirs get the better of them. They were going to put him in his place. They were acting in the place of God. They thought they could do a better job of preserving and protecting themselves than following God and his will. Well, they may not have said it directly, but their actions display what they really thought about God's promise passing through Joseph. In the end of the story, we see again that that the bones of Jacob and his sons were returned to the promised land. We have this, this, this display of faith here. Joseph went to Egypt as a slave. He was elevated by God to a position of authority in Egypt. And even though Joseph enjoyed a tremendous amount of prosperity and blessing, he knew that Egypt was not his home. And when his family eventually came down, when there was a famine, and you know this, you may be familiar with the story, there was a famine, and of course, Joseph's brothers were sent down to get grain because Joseph, very wisely, and according to the, to the revelation of God himself about this famine, Joseph wisely counseled Pharaoh, you should set aside grain because there's a famine coming. And they did. And they had grain. When no one else had grain, they had it. Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt to buy grain, right? They come down once. And Joseph sends them back. He keeps Simeon down there. In jail. (laughs) Sends them back and he says, don't come back unless you bring your youngest brother with you, right? And after a while, they run out of grain and they go back. Eventually. Convincing Jacob to let them take Benjamin. They go back to Egypt. And it's only there that that Joseph then reveals himself to them. And then he invites, he says, "Go, go and get dad. Go get the rest of the family. Bring them down here. I know that Pharaoh will let them live here. We see through those events that God's promise to Abraham was being fulfilled each step of the way. But they get to Egypt. And the truth is, Egypt is not their home. Why? Because God has promised them another home. God's word is true. And at the end of their lives, though Jacob and his sons really with the exception of Joseph, demonstrate throughout their lives a failure of faith, a lack of faith. At the end of their lives, we see an example of faith. Sending their bones back to the land. Yes, we know we lived here in Egypt, but we know that God will bring our descendants out as He promised. And so we're going to send our bodies on ahead. And we'll be there waiting for them. That's the mark of faith here. So there's a transformation that takes place. The beginning of their lives, we see them acting in rebellion against God's plan. But in the end, we see them trusting in God for the completion of His Word.
I think there's something that they learned here about the faithfulness of God to keep his word. I think there's really three lessons that we should learn. I told you there are three examples. That's what I want to look at here. What are the three examples? Well, let's look at God's example. What's the first lesson we need to learn from this story? Well, we need to learn this. God is faithful to keep his word. God is faithful to keep his word even when we are not. God is faithful to keep his word even when we're not. I love the way Jeremiah says it. You don't have to turn there, but in Lamentations 3, Jeremiah says what to me is one of the most challenging passages of Scripture. Lamentations 3 and verse 20, uh, verse 19, Jeremiah says, Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. It seems like a strange thing to say. I remember all of my suffering. And it gives me hope. What does he say? Verse 22, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we sing that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Morning by morning, your mercies I see. It's taken directly from this passage. Jeremiah says, listen, as bad as I have had it, as much as I have suffered, I wake up this morning alive, and I realize it's only God's mercy that I have not been consumed. God, you're great. Your faithfulness is great. God's faithfulness undergirds His love and His mercy. You see, God is faithful. That's why we can trust that God loves us. That He shows mercy to us. Because He's always faithful. That never changes. God was faithful to Joseph's brothers. You see, we see this all throughout Scripture. Titus 1 is another passage where this uh, is very clearly stated for us. In Titus 1, the first three verses, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of a God our Savior. He says, God can't lie. That's why I know that I have hope of eternal life. Because God can't lie. Hebrews 6 is another passage. In fact, Hebrews 6 uses the example of Abraham. The promise. Hebrews 6, verse 13, the author of Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so, after he, that's Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability or the unchanging 
nature of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. You realize that God is faithful even when we are not. God's word promises to us hope. Hope of a future. Hebrews 11 tells us that that's what Abraham and that's what Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs had hope in. God's promise for the future. The word of God gives us promises too. We see this. We have hope. And we can lay hold on that hope. Why? Because God is faithful. His character is immutable. It doesn't change. God cannot lie. He keeps His word. And so we see in the story here, in the the life of Joseph, but not just Joseph, in the life of his brothers, we see God being faithful. Keeping His word. And so you need to remember that this morning. God is faithful to keep his word. Oh, sometimes it takes a while. God promised Abraham a son. Fifteen years later, he still didn't have a son. God promised it again. And it was only by faith in God's word that Abraham received the promise. And see... I'm sure there were times for Joseph when he despaired ever of seeing his family again. Can you imagine? And yet, simple faith, what God had promised, his obedience to God. He believed God's word because God is faithful. That's not the only example we see. The second example is really a negative one. It's Joseph's brothers. What their example teaches us is this. Rebellion against God's purpose leads to hardship and loss of blessing. Rebellion against God's purpose leads to hardship and loss of blessing. You see, in Genesis, I want to point out, first of all, that Genesis 50, In in Joseph's response to his brothers, he says, You meant this to me for evil, but God meant it for good, to save much people alive. Joseph understood a principle that I want to mention, that is, rebellion against God's purpose cannot thwart his plan. You see, they rebelled against God's plan and purpose as it had been revealed in, uh, in the life of Joseph, and yet God still fulfilled his promise. And his plan still went forward. Acts 2. If you remember Peter, when he preached at the day of Pentecost, he said this to the, uh, to the Jews that were there. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. You see, Joseph, oh, yeah, he was sold as a slave. He endured much hardship. 
and difficulty. But Joseph's testimony was, listen, you meant this for evil. But God was in control. He meant this for good. And Peter's testimony about Jesus was the same to to these Jewish leaders and these Jewish people in Jerusalem. You crucified the Lord of glory. But God meant it for good. God, he, he superintended this process, raised them from the dead. Understand, they were rebelling against God, but they couldn't, they couldn't stop God's plan from going forward. So what happens? They rebelled against God, but they can't thwart God's plan. It doesn't affect God. It affects them. You see, when we rebel against God's plan and His purpose, we don't affect Him. We don't stop Him. We don't slow Him down. He's not, his arm is not weak. That somehow what he has promised he cannot do. When we rebel against God's plan, against his word, all we do is bring pain and suffering on ourselves. That's what Joseph's brothers did. Think about them for a minute. Having rejected God's plan for them and for their brother Joseph, they were forced to live for years, with the knowledge of the lie that they had told their father, that their brother had been torn apart by wild beasts. They lied to their father, deceived him. He thought his son was dead because of them. Can you imagine going back home, living each and every day for the rest of your life in the presence of your father to whom you have lied and deceived about this horrible thing? The guilt that they must have felt. The difficulty to maintain that lie. I'm sure they had to wonder about how long Joseph would survive as a slave. And on their conscience weighing down the thought that he was probably dead because of them. That they were really guilty of murder because of that. Not only that, but it was they and their families who suffered when the famine came to Canaan. When the famine came, do you think Joseph was suffering? No. You see, Joseph was prepared for it. Joseph was in a position of authority in Egypt. A place of ease and comfort. In fact, if you read the account there, what we realize is that through the working of Joseph, Pharaoh increased his wealth and possessions in Egypt dramatically. And I don't think that Joseph missed out on that. Joseph... Rather than suffering in the famine, he, he had plenty. It was his brothers who ran out of food. They were the ones who had to endure the hardship of that journey from Canaan down to Egypt. Twice. All they did was make it harder on themselves. When they got to Egypt, they had to bow down and humiliate themselves before an Egyptian official. Or so they thought, not realizing it was actually Joseph. And of course, even then, not realizing they were fulfilling exactly God's, God's promise. Exactly what God had said would happen. They did. They bowed down and worshipped. Just as God had said. And there they were bowing down before this Egyptian official. Begging for the privilege to buy food from their families. They didn't have to do it once, they had to do it twice. The cost of their rebellion and their sin was great. They suffered. Had they simply been willing 
to submit to the, to the will of God. Had they simply said, you know what? We may not like it, but God has chosen Joseph. God's going to elevate Joseph. Okay, Lord, we'll get on board with that. That's your word, it's your plan, it's your will. We'll do it. How would God have preserved them? I don't know. He would have. Because God had promised that the land was going to be theirs. He promised this. How would it have happened? I don't know. But the how is not my problem. God would have worked that out. What I do know is they wouldn't have suffered nearly what they suffered. Because they put themselves in a place through their own rebellion against God, which led to hardship and loss of blessing. That is true of us today too sometimes. The third example is, of course, the example of Joseph. The example of Joseph is an example of faithfulness, of faith, of trust in God. And so what do we learn about trust? Well, trust in God's word results in blessing. Trust in God's word results in blessing. Now, let's not confuse this. I'm not suggesting to you that if you simply have faith in God, that, that he'll make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Okay. Joseph had his share of suffering. Joseph's suffering primarily was brought on by, as a result of his brother's sin against him. Right? He didn't do anything to deserve that. But God blessed him. He became the chief steward of Potiphar's house. And once again, he was sinned against when Potiphar's wife lied about him. Right? Falsely accused him. And then he was thrown into prison, elevated to a position of authority. And once again, he was neglected. And yet, once again, God elevated him, taking him into Pharaoh's house. He became Pharaoh's regent, exercising authority over the entire land of Egypt. And as a direct result of his position, he was instrumental in preserving his father and his entire family. When it came time for Jacob to bless his sons, this is what's really interesting in Genesis 50. When Jacob blessed his sons, he called Joseph to him and he had Joseph bring his two sons. And rather than bless Joseph, Jacob said to him, your sons will now be my sons. And he blessed each of them. Do you realize that meant Joseph got double the blessing that each one of his brothers got? Joseph was the one who received the double portion as the oldest son would receive. God, God's promise. It worked out exactly like God said, ultimately. Joseph received the double portion of the blessing. And it's not just that everything worked out okay for Joseph. You know, see, we look at that and we say, yeah, but Joseph's example is unusual. Because in Joseph's example, he became a leader. You know, it was like him becoming vice president. All of a sudden, all of his debt was, you know, he, everything was taken care of for him, right? Life just got peachy for him. We tend to look at that and say, well, okay, that's nice. But that, that, that wouldn't happen to me. Or when it doesn't happen, then we get frustrated. Well, God didn't just work everything out like he did for Joseph. Boy, if I was him, everything would have been just fine. I'm still suffering. I'm still in the middle of this difficulty. Okay. I want you to realize, though, that it was through Joseph that God providentially moved his promise one step closer to fulfillment. See, Joseph died just like Abraham without seeing the fulfillment of God's promise. But they were closer, right? 
Now, instead of just one son like Abraham saw, now there's a whole group of them, a whole family. And now they've been taken to Egypt just like God promised. And if they knew, if they knew what God had promised to Abraham, then they knew what was coming. They knew there was going to be oppression and hardship and then deliverance. And ultimately they would receive the land just like God had promised. This was God working out His plan through the difficulties and through the blessings of Joseph's life. And I think this was a direct example of the principle that Paul speaks of in Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is a lot more complex than just some trite saying we, we say to make people feel better. Listen to what it says. Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Let's not stop there, though. Because if we don't read the rest of it, we miss out on what Paul is actually saying. He says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see, God is working out his plan in your life. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that God has the same plan for every believer. The same goal in mind. He said, you know, this is what's really kind of, you know, we, we tend to look around and compare ourselves with other people, you know. Oh, I'm not as, I'm, I'm not, you know, this so-and-so is really spiritual and me, I'm just, you know, I struggle. But this, I, he's really got it all together. Or she really has this whole Christian life thing figured out and she doesn't seem to really struggle with things. And we, we, we tend to kind of compare ourselves. Well, compare this. Where are you going to end up? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, where are you going to end up in exactly the same place? You will end up glorified, Paul says. He says, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. The end result is the same. That's God's plan. That's what he's working out on your life. The question for us then today is really to see will we submit to God's purpose or will we resist it? See, the simple truth is that God has revealed to us his plan. His plan is that each one of us would be glorified. That means that we would be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. Will you submit to that? Or will you rebel against it? Joseph's brothers rebelled against it. And they suffered. And they had hardship. And Joseph suffered too because life is involves suffering. Even for the righteous. Why? Because it's a sinful place we live in. But even in the midst of Joseph's suffering, God was continually working and preserving and elevating him and prospering him and blessing him. So that at the end of Joseph's life, he could say, I were one step closer. I may not see it fulfilled, but God, you've done something. You've moved one step closer to your plan and purpose being fulfilled. And I have confidence that you will continue. 
The example of Joseph and his brothers ought to stand before us, reminding us of the trials that accompany the stubborn refusal to surrender to God's will and the wonderful peace and confidence that comes to those who trust in God's word. I think it's interesting in Acts 9 that when God confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, he asked him why he continued to oppose him. And the image that God used, the metaphor that he used when he asked him the question, was of an ox kicking against the goads. You see, Saul's rebellion against God led only to his own pain and suffering. Well, God's plan continued to play out unaffected by Saul's opposition. We're going to see this, actually. Stephen is the first recipient of it. This persecution that arises in the church. But rather than stifle it, rather than than co-opt the message of the gospel, the persecution only, only serves to intensify it. It only serves to cause it to spread even faster. And so as much as Paul tried to oppose it, as much as he tried to, to somehow overcome the will and the purpose of God, all he was doing was causing more suffering for himself until finally he, he believed and he trusted. Will you give up this morning your own attempt to be good enough for God and allow him to save you? You see, we rebel against that. God's word says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. If you're trying to earn God's favor this morning, you can't. In fact, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're rebelling against God's plan, and all you're doing is bringing more pain and more suffering into your life. Instead, you need to submit to his will and trust him in faith. Receive the regeneration, the forgiveness that he offers. Well, there's other ways that we do this too. Will you stop this morning trying to change everyone around you and instead allow God to change you? Will you focus on the goodness of God in your life and stop complaining about your weakness? Will you stop pursuing your own selfish desires and trust God to give you exactly what you need? The choice is before you today. What will you do? Let's pray.